0: Good job with that new one. We learned it today and we'll sing it again next week because both of these texts look to Christ as the King. As there's this debate between Rome and the Jews, who's really in charge here? It becomes clear that Jesus is the King. And specifically in this week's text, we see that Jesus is the King of truth. Pilate asks a significant question in this text. He says to Jesus, what is truth? That question continues to echo in the world today. This is really the question that so many people ask, or maybe even worse, they're no longer asking this question and they're looking to their own view of the world as truth. Indeed, this is the temptation to think that the way I see things is the truth about the world. This is where absolute truth begins to kind of drift out the window as each of us can just kind of decide for ourselves what is true. We can choose our own identity, so to speak, or like those old books, choose your own adventure, right? I'm in charge of my life, or as the famous Disney tagline goes, follow your hearts, write your truth for life. But is that really truth? Is that really where we should be looking for truth? In ourselves? No. Jesus shows us in this text that He's the truth. He's the King of truth. And His voice speaks truth. And His kingdom is made of those who heed the voice of truth. So friends, as we open to John 18 and study the text that we've already read this morning... We want to learn this together today. In a world of frauds, heed the voice of the King of Truth. In a world of frauds, heed the voice of the King of Truth. No, I did not say in a world of frogs. (laughs) That would be another mistake. In a world of frauds, phonies, fakes, scams, imposters, in a world of charlatans, heed the voice of the king of truth. As we consider this, the way this court scene unfolds, we see the contrast between Jesus, the king of truth, and the way the rest of us approach things. And so I want you to notice this contrast. We begin in verse 28 with the introduction. We're setting up the scene here. John tells us that they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. So there's our transition. And if you remember back to last week, we studied Jesus' trial with the Jews, first before Annas and then before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish trial, a mock trial. Nothing really significant was decided except that they wanted to put Jesus to death and couldn't do it themselves, so they have to come to Rome. And so there's our transition. They go to the praetorium. So our scene begins there. And I want to try to draw this picture today with locations on the platform. So we'll we'll start here outside the praetorium. The praetorium was the Roman headquarters for the governor of the region of Judea. You know his name. It's coming up in the text. Pilate there in verse 29. He's the governor of Judea, the representation of Roman authority in the region, and the praetorium was his headquarters whenever he was in this area, in Jerusalem. So here come the chief priests and the leaders of Judaism with Jesus, bound in chains, and they come to the praetorium. Now notice something interesting about what they do here. It says, they themselves did not go in to the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So, what exactly is going on here? Well, remember, this is early in the morning, as the text tells us. This has been a rush, right? Thursday night is when Jesus was arrested in the garden. And so, late that night, he goes to Annas, and then Caiaphas, and through that trial, and they're rushing. This is not. Typical of the Sanhedrin, right? Think of political debates between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think slow, right? Debating back and forth. Well, let's meet again about this. This is how they handle things. But no, with Jesus, they just want to put him to death. And so it's rushed. And with just mere hours, probably now five or six in the morning, they're coming to the Roman courts to try to get this murder to come through. And so there they arrive, and the text says they stay outside lest they be defiled. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament that I can find that says that they couldn't enter this Roman headquarters. So they had apparently created some tradition related to their ritual purity that if they entered Roman headquarters or maybe a maybe Gentile dwelling place, we don't even know exactly where they came up with this, but that if they entered, they in their pure righteousness would be defiled. Okay, so they stay outside the praetorium in order to maintain their ritual righteousness. Now, John points this out, I think, to help us begin to grasp the irony of what's unfolding in this scene. As they seek to murder Jesus, they won't go in the praetorium and defile themselves. Now, the text tells us that they don't want to do this because they want to participate in the Passover So this is now Friday morning. This is the day when Passover lambs are sacrificed. And that evening is when they partake of the Passover meal. Now, do you remember what Passover signifies? Passover was a Jewish celebration looking back to the time when God delivered the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And you remember how God did that on the final nights of those plagues. The angel of death was going to pass over the land and take the firstborn son unless they did something. They took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts. And this was how God delivered His people out of Egypt. This is what Passover remembers. And so if the high priests would defile themselves, they wouldn't be able to take part in the Passover feast. They'd have to go through the purification rituals, which could take up to a week, and they didn't want to miss this grand feast, this grand time of looking at them and their righteousness, so they stay outside. So here they are trying to maintain their own righteousness. They remain outside in order to remain undefiled. They maintain these outward works in order to try to show their righteousness in the midst of Passover, remembering that deliverance comes only by the blood of the Lamb, as they try to prove their righteousness by their outward rituals. God used the blood of the Lamb to redeem His people out of Egypt, and yet here, The leaders of Judaism are maintaining their own righteousness, so to speak, with these outward rituals. Well, we can look at the chief priests and become pretty critical of them as they move forward in this plot, but what I want us to see is that it's not just them. This is what all of us tend to do. This is why Jesus came as the King of Truth, because all of humanity seeks to do this. This is the first thing we learn from the text is that we too use phony works to try to hide the truth of our sin. Just like the chief priests and the Jewish leaders who stood outside the praetorium. Oh, we can't go in there. We have to stay pure and righteous. Righteous. We, too, set up all sorts of phony, fake ways to try to soothe our consciences and show ourselves to be righteous, not in need of a Savior, but instead righteous on our own. Because I do this, and I do this, and I do this. Haven't you seen? (laughs) The story is told of one of the largest ships made in the 1900s, the Queen Mary much larger even than the Titanic, the Queen Mary never sank. It was a massive ship, and in the year 1936, when it was, the, when it was first launched, it was the largest ship to ever cross an ocean. It continued in service for four decades through the world's wars, and finally was retired and turned into a hotel in Long Beach, California. During the process of converting it into a hotel, the three massive smokestacks on the ship were going to be stripped of their paint and bolstered in strength and then rebuilt. But as they began to strip the paint, the smokestacks just crumbled away. What they discovered is that there was no metal left underneath the 30 layers of paint that had been put on over and over again through the years. All that time on the ocean and the metal had entirely rusted away, and all that's left is a shell of paint, and the smokestacks crumbled. Now, of course, that three-quarter-inch steel took time to rust away to nothing, and indeed, they rebuilt it, but the illustration is helpful to us. Layers and layers of paint. It looks like these strong, sturdy smokestacks have endured the ages, but under the paint, there's nothing. Friends, this is what we try to do with our righteous works. We put on layer after layer of ritual works. Oh, well, look how righteous I am. Oh, I can't do that. I would be defiled. But it's phony. The King of Truth came to show us that there's no forgiveness of sins apart from the blood of a lamb, that Jesus is the lamb who paid for our sins can't soothe our consciences by doing good works. You see, most religions of the world preach this truth, that by doing good works, we can reverse or outweigh the bad things that we've done. And so we all begin to develop these little rituals to soothe our conscience. The big one today is this be kind movement. As long as we're kind and affirming, we're okay, right? Wrong. There's a deeper issue underlying defilement in our hearts that must be dealt with. Love speaks the truth, and that's the truth that Jesus brought to the world, that indeed our deeds are evil. We live for ourselves, and we fight and war trying to get what we want, and we've sinned against God. There's only one way to be saved from that sin. is a person, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, friends, if you've not dealt with your sin, if you've been using rituals or righteous acts to try to paint over the rusting metal in your heart, come to Jesus today, who can forgive your sins because He paid for them on the cross. This is what the voice of the King of Truth says to us today. As He goes to the cross, trust in Me, I died to bring you salvation. Believer, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, but it may be that you've fallen back into this sort of ritual way of living, depending on your righteous works rather than on the work of Christ on the cross. When asked about your Christian life, do you think first of the things you're doing for Christ? Well, I go to church, and I study my Bible, and I smile, and I'm nice, and... but all the while... God is prodding at your heart about some sin. Rather than confess it and turn away, we just kind of paint on more good works to try to soothe our consciences. The voice of truth, the King of truth, calls you today to confess your sin and then to trust His forgiveness, that His work on the cross is enough. Not just to peel the fake paint away, but to Rest in His strong steel, the smokestacks that never rust away, right? You see, the Lamb has paid for our sins. and When we trust in Him for salvation, our sins are washed away as far as the east is from the west. And then that forgiveness, that love for Christ begins to compel our good works, not to build up our righteousness, but to show that He is the King of truth. As we continue in the text, we notice more about this contrast between Jesus and the warring kingdoms here. And I want you to see what happens next in verse 29. Pilate goes out to them. So remember the scene. Here are the Jewish leaders, right? The high priests and the the authorities of Judaism. They're outside, and we have this strange occurrence. Pilate goes out to them. He's supposed to be in charge here, right? Right? He could very easily say, no, you come here, right? I'm sitting on my judgment seat, you come in to me. But no, he goes out to them. And this creates a significant thing in our story. We now have Pilate bouncing back and forth in two from two places. He goes out and listens to the Jews, and then you'll see a little bit later, he goes back inside the praetorium calls Jesus to himself and begins to talk with Jesus. And then at the end of the story, he goes back out to the Jews and begins to talk to them in one final scene. And this back and forth movement is supposed to help us picture in our minds Pilate deliberating between what the Jews are saying and what Jesus is saying. And so it's almost as if all of Rome, but maybe even more accurately, Pilate himself is deliberating what's Really, going on here. So he comes out to the Jews and he opens the trial as it should be open. What's the accusation? What's your charge against this man? He asks them as he goes out to them. Verse 30 gives this almost laughable response. I mean, just just hear the pride dripping from this statement to Pilate, the Roman authority. If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. It's almost like, it's almost like they look at Pilate as asking a silly question here. Pilate's just opening the trial. Okay, what's the accusation? <laughs> well, do you think we would have brought him to you if he weren't evil? Okay, that's not how trials work at all, right? You can you imagine, like a lawyer standing up in court, he's just evil, so... Okay, well, do you have any evidence? Do you have any, like, you know, can we work through this? No, I mean, this is their accusation. He's an evildoer. Okay, right? This is not very helpful. Pilate begins to understand. He's, he's actually, I think, fairly smart in this interchange here. He understands that they aren't here for his opinion. They don't care what he thinks. And so he just tries to say, well, look, if you think he's an evildoer, then you judge him. If you've already decided... That he's an evildoer, then you judge him. And so that's what he says in verse 31. You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, catch their meaning. Why have they brought Jesus to Pilate? This is not about determining whether Jesus deserves anything, they just want to put Jesus to death. And so they've brought him to Pilate, and they've said openly to Pilate, he's an evildoer. We want him to put put him to death, but it's not lawful for us. Now, it's likely that they're referring to the Mosaic law. It could be they're referring to Roman law, that Rome didn't allow them to put anyone to death. But on numerous occasions, even in the gospel, they've threatened to stone people. I think they want to do something more public and embarrassing to Jesus. I think they want him to die on a cross. And so they can't do that according to the Mosaic law, so they want to shove it off on Rome. We want to put him to death, but we want you to do it, Pilate. That's what they're saying to him. And so this is their argument. Ah, he does evil things and we want to kill him, but we can't do that according to the Mosaic law. So, Pilate, we wondered if you'd do it for us. Okay, here's their great argument. Pilate, of course, sees through it what we need to notice here is that as they bring these lies to Pilate, as they call the Son of God, the sinless one, an evildoer, I mean, there's no more foundational lie than that, than to call Jesus an evildoer. So as they lie to Pilate, notice what's actually happening in verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by which death He would die. Jesus had already said three times in the Gospel of John alone, chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 28, chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus had said that the Son of Man would be lifted up, referring to a cross, that's the common way of referring to crucifixion in Roman times. And John even points that out for the reader to understand, signifying by what death he would die. Right? So he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And so here, as the Jewish leaders lie to Pilate and call Jesus an evildoer so they can kill him, what's actually going on is Jesus' word is being proved true. Do you see the contrast there? And here's the second thing we learn From the unfolding of this story, we use false words, but His Word stands true, always. (laughs) No matter what lies we come up with, no matter what fake truth we try to present, the Word of Christ always stands. And even as these Jewish leaders try to do something... deceptive here. Well, we can't put him to death according to Mosaic law, but if we bring him to Pilate, maybe Pilate can crucify him. Yes, this will work. And all it does is prove Jesus' word is true. This is the nature of the King of Truth. And it puts the burden on us. We're like the child that comes to his parent with chocolate all over his mouth. And the parent says, well, did you eat the last piece of the chocolate cake? No, I didn't have any chocolate cake okay. (laughs) But this is where all of us are. Our words are not true. And our lies just happen to prove exactly what Jesus came to show as He testifies the truth that we indeed are a people in need of a Savior because we have lied. Our words have not been true. We have Followed after our own truth, so to speak, and in so doing, we need the sinless one to save our souls. Many things we do to try to justify ourselves. We claim there's no God, or we hold something against Him as if He did wrong. He's an evildoer, so I can't believe in a God like that, and so we pretend He doesn't exist without proof or evidence of such. But it doesn't change the truth. We are the evildoers. His word stands true. And the more evil we do, the truer his word shines as a light in the darkness. You see, the king of truth, knowing we were evildoers, went to the cross. He knew this was coming and he still stepped forward because he knew that we as liars and evildoers would need one to save us, one who had never lied, one whose word is always true. So come to the one whose word has never failed and never will. Believer, even after salvation, maybe you try to resist His word. We read a verse of Scripture and point at others. They need to get their act together and see what this verse says. But we ignore what God is seeking to do in our own hearts. Or we soften our sin. Well, what I said wasn't completely true. I guess I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry I spoke that way in front of you. We ignore what our sin really is. We ignore what the Bible calls it, sin against a holy God. So, friend, yield to the truth of God's Word. See the world as God says it is, because the more we deceive ourselves and others, the more His Word stands true and what needs to take place is that we believe the words of the King of truth. Notice what happens in this next scene. This scene takes us inside as Pilate has sort of heard enough from the Jewish leaders. Yeah, we just want to put him to death and we want you to do it, Pilate. Okay. Let's talk to Jesus. So Pilate goes inside the praetorium, and I, note, I want you to notice the distinction here in verse 33. Pilate goes back into his place where he had his judgment seat, and now he actually calls Jesus to himself. And so Jesus enters the praetorium. And so there it is just Jesus and Pilate in the room. Pilate opens the conversation by speaking to Jesus with a straight question, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' And we don't know exactly where Pilate got this information. The triumphal entry, right, where they're worshiping him and lauding him as king and waving the palm branches was just a few days before this. So it's possible that Pilate had heard news of that. And so that's why he thinks Jesus might be the king of the Jews. It also could be that there had been talk of a Messiah. And Rome would have especially had an ear to Messiah talk because they wanted to put down any kind of revolt, anything that would be a threat to Rome. And so maybe Pilate had heard that kind of speaking, so he comes straight forward and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And so in this question to Jesus, we now have this clash of kingdoms, right? So we have the Jewish kingdom, so to speak. They just want to put Jesus to death and maintain uh, their powerful relationship with Rome as it is. Then you've got Pilate wondering if Rome is safe with this potential king of the Jews rising up. Is he going to rebel against Rome? And then you have Jesus, King of the true kingdom. And in this clash of kingdoms, we begin to see what the real debate is between. Is it between Rome and Judaism, or is it something else? Verse 34, Jesus asks asks a probing question. Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus wants to know if Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, is genuine. Does he really want to know? Is he really wanting to understand if Jesus is a king, or is he just repeating what he's heard others say? If it's the latter, then it just falls into the category of this kingdom clashing. Pilate just wants to know if Jesus is a threat. And indeed, that's exactly what it is. In verse 35, Pilate says, am I a Jew? What's he saying? He's saying, look, if you're the king of the Jews, this just matters for your Jewish people. But there's something strange I don't understand. Your own nation, he says in verse 35, your own chief priests have delivered you to me. So what's going on here? He says at the end of verse 35, what have you done? So think of his kingdom view here of things. Pilate's going, okay, are you the king of the Jews? You know, are you loyal to them? And are you raising up this rebellion against Rome? And Jesus is like, okay, do you, do you want to know? Or are you just repeating what they've said? And Pilate distances himself from Judaism. He says, am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew. Your people are the ones who turned you in here. What did you do to deserve being ostracized from your kingdom? He thinks Jesus' kingdom is just... Judaism. And that's where Jesus is about to help his understanding. So Pilate mentions this to him and notice Jesus' response in verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus takes this kingdom debate to a whole nother level. Pilate's kind of going, okay, are you loyal to the Jews? Are you going to do an uprising against Rome? What's going on here? And Jesus very carefully doesn't answer the king of the Jews' question. Because if he did say, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, Pilate's thinking, okay, you're trying to build your little Jewish nation right here. And Jesus is about to explain, that's not at all what this is about. So he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It has an entirely different source and origin. This is God's kingdom that Jesus is here to proclaim. And so he's helping Pilate understand that this this war, this battle of kingdoms, is not between Judaism and Rome. It's between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. He's opening Pilate's eyes to an entirely different battle that's raging. Jesus' kingdom is sourced in God. It's not of the world. It's different. It's not about Judaism or Roman kingdom or any of that. It's an entirely different kingdom. Now, I want you to notice something specifically interesting about Jesus' statement. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. That's a really interesting statement. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. They'd handle this like every other kingdom. They'd handle this like Rome, or they'd handle it like the Jews, and they'd just go to battle, like the Jews are doing to Jesus, just trying to put him to death, fight and kill. That's how worldly kingdoms handle their kingdom issues. Jesus says, if I were from the world, I would handle it that way. I'd Throw around my authority, my weight, my servants would fight, and I could win that way. He doesn't say that, but we all know he could. But I think Jesus is fighting in a different way. You see, God's kingdom, as Jesus stands here before Pilate, is actually being won. Jesus, on the way to the cross, is actually him battling for the victory. Now, that's hard for us to grasp at first because our minds are so entrenched in worldly kingdoms, right? You want to win, you fight, and you, you know, bring your sword like Peter and cut a guy's ear off. That'll do the trick. Jesus handles it in an entirely different way. He takes the sins of the world on his shoulders, and he pays for them at the cross, and he conquers sin and death. That's how Jesus fights, and he wins. And he conquers every worldly kingdom and establishes God's kingdom on the foundation of one who died and rose again for the sins of the world. That's victory. And it's a victory like the world had never seen before and will never see again. There's only one king that fights this way, and it's Jesus. You see, here we are, all defending our fake kingdoms, but His kingdom prevails. It's what Pilate's doing, it's what the Jews are doing, it's what all of us do. We we find some kingdom we want to fight for. Usually it's our own little kingdom. We make ourselves kings or queens and try to establish our kingdom and then we fight for it. But Jesus is the one who truly prevails remember playing capture the flag at camp. If you've ever played capture the flag, you take a flag and you hide it somewhere and the other team takes their flag and they hide it somewhere and you try to guard that flag. And if the other team steals it and takes it back to their base, then they win the game. And you go back and forth. You're basically playing tag. It's sort of a complicated version of tag. So I remember playing this one time and the opposite team was, uh, was really carefully guarding their flag. And while they're guarding their flag, somebody from our team had actually snuck out of some woods, grabbed the flag, and snuck back in the woods, and the other team had no idea. And so the rest of us are all kind of running around trying to get to the flag. So we keep up the uh, impression that it's still there, hidden in their spot, and we're still trying to get to it. And so they're guarding it and trying to tag us and so forth. And all of a sudden, there's this... megaphone sound that comes from the opposite side of the field the game is over the blue team has won and everybody in the red team was just kind of like what our flag's still right here what how in the world did the other team win well they didn't know we had taken the flag early in the game and it had been gone they'd been guarding this empty secure spot and the flag wasn't even there anymore they had been fighting for a kingdom that had already fallen Friends, this is what we do so often in our lives. We defend our fake kingdoms. It may be that you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. You see, before we trust in Christ, we are ourselves kings and queens of our own little fake kingdoms. We serve ourselves. We have no choice but to do so. We're slaves to our sin. And so we do good things, but it's to get what we want. We manipulate to get what we want. We love others to get what we want, but the cross frees us from that. Jesus shows us a new way. He lays down His life for the sheep the ones who had sinned against Him, and He conquered our sin and death. He calls us out of our fake kingdoms to follow Him. But even as believers, having trusted in Christ as Savior, having been united with Christ and become uh, citizens of this future kingdom, we can still sort of try to establish our own little realms on earth. We begin to see Jesus as just this helpful addition to the kingdom I'm building for myself. Yeah, He he makes my kingdom a little better. I like having Him a part of my kingdom. Question is, am I just building my own kingdom, or am I on board with the true King, the King of truth, Jesus? Do you see your life as your own? Is your body yours or His? Is Jesus in your life to make your life better, or are you following because He died for you and rose again? As we come to the final two sections of this psalm, or excuse me, this uh, debate between Pilate and Jesus, I want you to notice in verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight how this conversation closes. Pilate says to him, you are a king then. In some translations, it's written as a question, are you a king then? But it could be read simply a statement. You are a king then. I think Pilate has heard Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world. He admits, I am a king. I have a kingdom. It's different than you've ever understood, Pilate. And Pilate kind of latches onto to that. He certainly doesn't get everything Jesus says, but he, he at least catches that much. Aha! You are a king. You are a king. Jesus, in verse 37, excuse me, 30, uh, yeah, 37, he confirms that Pilate has said something true here. You're right. You say rightly that I am a king. This is why I was born. This is why I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth, the true kingdom, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus explains that he was born to be a king. He was sent to the world to bear witness to the truth that God's kingdom is the true kingdom, not these phony worldly kingdoms that everyone sets up. This doesn't surprise us in the Gospel of John. We can think back to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or then in John 14, when He proclaims openly, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the father but through me jesus is indeed the truth and he explains this to pilate this is why he's come he is a king and he's come to bear truth to the true kingdom and that he himself is truth in the flesh his final statement's everyone who hears uh, who is of the truth hears my voice i think in a sense could even be an invitation to Pilate. I am the truth, Pilate. If you would just hear my voice, listen to me. Don't be worried about Judaism or, or Rome. There's a real kingdom. I'm bearing witness to it before you right now, and I'm the king of that kingdom. Hear my voice. Pilate sadly dismisses the invitation with this statement, what is truth? I don't think this is a genuine question, because immediately after he says it, he walks back outside to the chief priests. He's made his choice. He leaves Jesus. He walks outside, and there's so much irony in his question, what is truth? The first irony is that he says, what is truth? When truth in the flesh is standing there before him, he should be saying, who is truth? It's Jesus. After hearing the king of truth, truth in the flesh, Pilate chooses to believe his own lies. And this is the fourth thing we see today. We believe our lies, but the king continues to speak the truth. we so often choose to go our own way, to believe our own lies. And the world just, this is the foundation of the world around us, that there are supposedly other ways to God or other ways to heaven or ways to find yourself, that you can create your own reality, but it's not true. It's all lies. God has made the world and there's one reality. It's His reality. And the world works exactly the way He designed it to work. He is the truth. And He sent His Son to bear witness to that truth, that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Romans one twenty five makes clear that this is our foundational problem. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So friend, listen to the voice of the King today. He speaks truth. He calls you to repent today, to believe in the Savior that God sent, the King of truth. See, He died for your sins and alone won the victory over sin and death and lies. And He is now exalted to the Father's right hand. He's left His church, His body on the earth to be a light in the darkness that here in the gathering of His people, we hear truth. And the voice of the King of Truth still resonates on the earth and calls those who believed the lies of Satan, the lies of this world, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, the true King. Trust in Him today. If you have trusted in Christ as Savior, then don't stop heeding His voice. This is the Christian life, to listen and listen and listen to the King of Truth. So often we adopt the lies of the world around us. We go after other things. And instead we must keep listening to Jesus. The story closes in an interesting way. In the final scene, Pilate leaves Jesus and walks back outside to the chief priests. Pilate really just wants to be rid of Jesus. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the king above the world. He doesn't believe that Jesus is any of these things. He seems to believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews, at least. But Jesus doesn't want, or excuse me, Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And so his statement in verse 38 makes that clear. He went out and he said again to the Jews, I find no fault in him at all. This is Pilate's verdict. And really, what should have happened here is that Jesus goes back to the Jews and they go off and do whatever they can do within their law. Pilate is saying, Look, I don't see any fault in him. But Pilate is more concerned about relations with the Jewish people. He knows they're not going to be happy with this, and so he offers sort of a compromise. We learn about this custom in verse 39. There's a custom that Pilate, in order to keep things calm and pleasant with the Jews, would release one of their own back to them around the Passover feast. Typically, this person would be someone who had, you know, in uh, zeal for Israel, had done something against Rome, and so Rome had arrested him and so forth, and so but they would, you know, kind of as a gesture of goodwill, would release that prisoner back to Israel. In this case... Pilate offers to release Jesus. He says, well, here, do you want your king, the king of the Jews? I'll just release him back to you and we can be done with this. He's out of my hands, I think is sort of what Pilate's thinking. Surprisingly, the Jews don't want that. This could have been solved so easily, we think, as we read this text. They cry in verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was Barabbas. A robber. Now, as we close, just a few important things to grasp from verse 40. Jesus is not even given a name. Not only is He not called the king as He deserves, He's not even, he's not even mentioned by name. This man, Barabbas, is given a name, and his name is mentioned, and John includes it, I think, with great importance. The word Barabbas has two parts to it, Bar and Abba. In Hebrew or Aramaic, the first part means son. So son of something. It was a common way to refer to people, oh, it's son of so-and-so, it's John's son or Jim's son. Okay, these aren't Hebrew names, but you understand, right? Bar Abba, son of Abba. But now wait a second, let's think about the word Abba and what that means. That actually means father. Now it could be that there was some guy named Abba, named Father but literally his name is Son of Father. Well, that's true. I'm sure he is the son of a father somewhere. It's kind of like our nickname, Junior, right? It's probably what it was for Barabbas. A nickname, Junior, Son of the Father. But do you catch the irony of what's happening here? The nameless one turns out to be Jesus, and this Son of the Father is the one that they call for. Give us the Son of the Father as the true Son of the Father goes to the cross for their sin. They call for Barabbas. Barabbas was a thief, a robber. That word is the very word used in John 10, when Jesus, the good shepherd, describes the false shepherds and even the robbers that come in and steal the sheep. Same word. The Jews choose the thief over the good shepherd as they call for Barabbas. Jesus is delivered to the cross to deliver sinners from God's wrath as the Lamb of God during the Passover feast. Jesus is delivered as the good shepherd as they choose the thief instead. Friends, what this reminds us is that we often accept the imposter and betray the true king. All of us are looking for a hero. Sometimes we think it's ourselves. Sometimes we latch on to somebody else. And we think, yeah, well, they'll they'll help me. They'll save me. They'll make things better. The form of worship. There's only one hero, and it's Jesus. And all other heroes that we look to are imposters, idols. We often even put ourselves back on the throne of our hearts and our lives. Worshiping us and doing what I want and serving me. We've accepted an imposter when we do that. There's only one hero. There's only one king. It's not Barabbas. It's not you. It's not me. It's the Lord Jesus, the true Son of the Father, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The King of truth who went to the cross in our place, died for our sins, and rose again. This is the one who is the hero. So, friend, I encourage you to heed the voice of the King of truth. Maybe that means today you need to come to faith in Christ. Abandon the kingdoms of this world and trust in the true King, the one who gave His life for you. Maybe this means that you have trusted in Christ as Savior, but you now need to take God at His word to believe His promises as you take the next steps of the Christian life, to believe that He has truly forgiven you of your sins and you can walk in joy and righteousness, to believe that His provision is enough and you can be content with what you have, to believe that He is always with you and will never leave you and you need not be afraid or worried. Maybe for you, heeding the voice of the King means heeding and obeying His Word. Changing as you spend time in the Word. The temptation for us as Christians is to grow familiar with the Word, but not changing as a result of the Word. I wonder, as you spend time with God in the Word, how is His Word changing you? Can you pinpoint something this week That God is doing in your heart through His Word. How is He changing you? This is a part of heeding the voice of the King of Truth. He's conforming us even today into the image of Christ, the true King, so that we will bring Him glory in His future kingdom. Heed the voice of the King of Truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus on his way to the cross and the incredible picture that's drawn here. The kingdoms of this world, Pilate and Rome and Jews, battle with one another for authority and power. And we see that Jesus all the while is in complete control, doing exactly what he knows he must do to bring salvation, being the hero and the king that no one else can be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, as we are bombarded with the lies of this world, even the lies of our own hearts, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, we come to you as the one who knows the heart. You test our hearts. We want to walk in the truth. We trust in Jesus, and we want to follow Him today. So help us to heed the voice of the King of truth. Thank you for the cross, and we pray in his name. Amen.